This is Kristen Hovitt, and you are listening to Humans of Earth, the podcast that seeks to make the world smaller through shared stories of ourselves and what matters to us. Oh my God, that was Whitey Bulger that pulled the gun on me that day. Welcome to the 17th episode of Humans of Earth. Today, I'm speaking with Thomas Sirignano, a 65-year-old writer, former auto service station owner, and former realtor from Lakeville, Massachusetts. Hello, Thomas. How are you? I'm great. Can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? I can hear you fine. (laughs) How are you feeling? Oh, I'm feeling fantastic. You had a shoulder joint replacement surgery, right? Yeah, it's been about a week and a half now. The first few days were really tough pain-wise, but now I'm doing fantastically better. Oh, what a difference. I can move my arm, which is the main concern I had after that surgery, so that's good. And I know you have some other issues actually with your back. So you said that there's some other surgeries that you're waiting for as well? Yes. Back years ago, I had a Harrington rod installed in my back uh, for scoliosis. And now I've got a couple of fusions uh, that have broken or whatever. I don't know. They need to be redone and I've got some herniated discs. (laughs) Always fun. So do you have any questions for me to start? Oh, I have a thousand questions. I would love to do an hour show asking you questions because I've listened to all of your podcasts. And I'll be honest with you, I get pretty choked up when I listen to that one that you talked about your cancer experience. Uh, That was, yeah, it was a hard one. I didn't really want to do it, but I felt the need to get it out there. And when I listen back, I can't stand that my nose is all stuffed up, but it is what it is, right? (laughs) No, that made it even more meaningful because... You know, you had to be your best advocate and uh, people need to know that in the medical profession. You have to be your own best doctor, you know. Yeah, it's true. I think going into it, if a person hasn't had a lot of those experiences, they have sort of this unwavering trust in their doctors, right? And that can get them in trouble, actually. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I argue with my wife about that all the time because I question everything. You know, I say, you know, he's a doctor, he's human, he can make mistakes. Right, exactly. So I guess I'll jump right in. Starting off with my first question, I I ask most people, how would you describe your hometown or where you grew up? It was an interesting area to grow up. You know, each section of Boston back in the 60s and 50s, you know, had its own personality. And Dorchester was predominantly an Irish Catholic type neighborhood. And uh, of course, I'm all Italian. There were only a couple of Italian families in the neighborhood. And there were three churches right on our street. And a lot of our life activities revolved around the St. Matthew's Church. We all went to school there, and it was right down the street. We'd walk home after, you know, during lunch hour, we could eat at home. Like many areas in Boston, it was undergoing a transformation during the 1960s also. It was basically getting integrated with different races of people, and that caused a lot of turmoil, too. And where do you live now? I live in a little town in uh, southern Massachusetts uh, near the gateway to Cape Cod called Lakeville. It's really countryish. I'm on a large lake here and almost got washed away in the past storm. <laughs> Are you still writing? I haven't really been able to concentrate on writing because of the pain issues that I've had to deal with, you know, over the past few years. It's hard to concentrate when you're not feeling well. When did you decide to write your first book, The Constant Outsider? I decided to write the book many years ago when the, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the area that I had my shop in. It was in South Boston and it has quite a colorful history. When somebody's living in a time of history being made, you don't really realize it until years later that, wow, you know, I was right in the thick of all this. And people might want to know what it was like to live and work in that environment of a high crime area and dealing with all different types of uh, people. You know, when you have an automotive shop, Everybody needs a mechanic, you know, whether you're a priest or a bookie or whatever. You deal with all types of people. So the job was very, very interesting. And uh, I thought people would be interested in reading about that era in Boston. I don't know if people in Canada maybe would be as familiar with what was going on here as people that live, you know, closer to it. We don't really hear about it too often. So a lot of it was really new to me when I was reading your book and I was kind of shocked. I had no idea about the extent of it. You actually believe that you had a run-in with Whitey Bulger. Can you describe that experience? I don't believe I did. I know I did. (laughs) For those who don't know who Whitey Bulger is, I'm going to use Wikipedia to help with some background information. 
Some of you may recall the 2015 film called Black Mass, in which Johnny Depp played James Whitey Bulger. James Whitey Bulger was born in September 1929. He's a former organized crime boss of the Winter Hill Gang in Boston, Massachusetts. According to the FBI, Bulger served as a confidential informant beginning in 1975, a claim Bulger denies. However, as a result, the FBI largely ignored his organization in exchange for information about the inner workings of the rival Italian-American Patriarca crime family. Beginning in 1997, the New England media exposed criminal actions by federal, state, and local law enforcement officials tied to Bulger. For the FBI especially, this caused great embarrassment. Bulger fled Boston and went into hiding on December 23, 1994, after being tipped off by his former FBI handler John Connolly about a pending indictment under the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. For 16 years, Bulger remained at large. For 12 of those years, Bulger was second on the FBI 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list behind Osama bin Laden. On June 22, 2011, Bulger was arrested outside an apartment in Santa Monica, California. He was 81 years old at the time. On June 12, 2013, Bulger went on trial for 32 counts of racketeering, money laundering, extortion, and weapons charges, including complicity in 19 murders. On August 12, he was found guilty on 31 counts, including both racketeering charges and was found to have been involved in 11 murders. On November 14, he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences plus five years for his crimes by U.S. District Judge Denise Casper. Bulger is now incarcerated for life at the United States Penitentiary Coleman II in Sumterville, Florida. During the gas shortages of the 1970s, you know, I had my gas station there in Southie and uh, we had to keep the general public away from the pumps in order to keep our commercial accounts full of fuel because they depended on us for their trucks and uh, without gasoline, they couldn't do business. So people that were not regular customers of ours, we had to put up uh, signs like limiting them to a couple of gallons of gas or whatever. We would put a sign up commercial customers only when gas really got low. But this one particular day, this big Oldsmobile drove up to the pumps and I wasn't familiar with who the guy was or anything. And he blurts out, fill it up. And I said to him, um, hey, pal, he says, can't you read the sign? It's a $2 limit today. I had never met Whitey Bulger before. I knew all about him because a lot of the people that came to my shop were actually working for him. All at once, I saw this gun come out and he points a gun in my face at the gas pumps. And he says, I said, fill it up. I just nodded my head. I says, OK, OK. I just walked around to the back of the car and I winked towards my office, which was only 10 feet away from the gas pumps, because I had a gentleman that had volunteered to watch over me with his gun because he had heard of all the close calls and confrontations that I was having recently at the gas pumps. When he saw the guy put the gun out the window at me, he was ready. And when I got out of the way and walked toward the back of the car, my friend whipped the front door of the gas station open and he came out in a firing stance, aiming his gun right at the gentleman's head, probably 10 feet away. And the guy was looking towards me, toward the rear of the car, making sure that I wasn't doing anything foolish. <laughs> he actually spotted the, my friend with the gun and he stepped right on the gas and drove away. He had to have it in drive the whole time, the motor running, because he was gone in a flash. It wasn't too much time after that incident that I spotted a picture of Whitey Bulger in a newspaper. And it was the exact same profile that I was looking at in that automobile's window. His face at the same end angle and everything. And my face just went flush. And I says, oh, my God, that was Whitey Bulger that pulled the gun on me that day. But it wasn't long after that incident that I came into work and uh, found my gas pumps had been smashed to the ground. I thought it was just an accident. You know, somebody was drunk and they ran into the pumps or whatever. But my gas jockey happened to live right across the street from the shop on the third floor of a three-decker home. And uh, so he saw me standing there with my hands on my hips looking at the pumps. And he came out. He says, Tom, he says, I says, yes, John. I says, some drunk must have hit the pumps. And he says, no, Tom, it was no accident. He says, I was up in my third floor window having a cigarette at one o'clock in the morning. 
and this big black Oldsmobile pulled up right to the pumps. He smashed into one of the pumps. Then he went around the block, came back, and smashed into the other one. So it was, it was no accident. If you saw the picture in my book, you can see the picture of the uh, the gas pumps, you know, smashed and hanging onto the ground. And you were able to get replacements out of that, right? <laughs> yeah, within, within hours, I got brand new. I had friends in the gasoline pump business, actually, and I made a call. I didn't even wait for my insurance guy to get there or anything because I needed those pumps put in in order to be in business. So I took pictures of them and I ordered new pumps. And within two hours, I think I had the, the pumps up and running. My insurance guy paid me for brand new pumps. Because you needed the four digit ones, right? I did. Yeah, this was the time when the three digit meter on the pump no longer was good because gas was so expensive. You needed four, you know, you needed like $25 instead of $9.95. It was $29.95. So. so he did you a favor. Favor, Whitey Boulders, like thanks. You did. <laughs> yeah. A big favor. So that's not your only run in with the mob. Um, you also had a lot of propositions over the years. Can I use your space for this, whatever that, you know, we're doing? You seem to have a lot of that. And you were able to just say consistently, no, no. Was it hard to say no? It really wasn't hard to say no to those things because everybody respects a good mechanic. If they're a loyal customer and they happen to be a loan shark, they have a good relationship with you in the first place. And they might ask you to do something like maybe hold a card game in the back room for some heavy hitters or whatever. And I was able to say, you know, I really don't want to do that and walk away from it. And I never had a problem where they pressured me to do things. The one time I really did get involved in some underhanded stuff, it started out rather innocently and uh, it kind of mushroomed into the point where I knew I was doing something wrong. These known you know, street thugs started bringing cars into my shop, telling me they were relatives' cars and they were selling them and they wanted to take the new tires off and the stereo system and they didn't want to trade the car in with all this good stuff on there. So after one or two cars, I says, hey, you know, I know... I know what's going on here. All these cars had out-of-state license plates on them and stuff. And I said, no, uh, I don't want to get involved in this. So they you know, made some threatening remarks to me and everything. They basically told me, no, we're bringing these cars in. So I, I had to figure out a way to get out of that situation. And I was on good terms with a lot of police officers in Boston, too. So I went to this uh, private police club that was in South Boston. I was hoping that this policeman that I knew really well would come in and I could ask him for some help. Thankfully, he did show up that day. So I was in this little tiny club. My policeman friend came in and I called him over. He knew something was wrong because he could see it in my eyes. And I says, can you give me a hand? I have a bad situation. I don't know how to get out of it. He says, anything I can do for you, I'll do, Tom. So I says, can you get a hold of a detective's car? tomorrow morning, like at 9 a.m., and just park across from my shop, maybe 200 feet up the road, and just sit there. And I'll signal you if it's okay to just leave. And he says, I can do that. He'd never asked me any questions. He just knew I wouldn't have asked him to do this if it wasn't important. So sure enough, at the same exact time, these guys would always come in with one of these cars. Here comes a car with New York license plates on it, drives up to my side bay of the garage, and I walk out into the street, and I approach the window and I say, hey, of course, he wants me to bring the car and take the tires off, take the stereo, you know, air chisel the trunk open, see if there's anything valuable in it. So I'm prepared to take the car in. And I says, by the way, I says, I says, I don't know. I think we're being watched. He says, what do you mean? And I says, well, don't look, turn around, but look in the mirror. I says, you see that blue Chevy down the street there? It's been there for like three days in a row. The guy's sitting in it. That's all I had to say. <laughs> they slam the car into drive. And what they would do is they would leave one car and a guy on a motorcycle would be following that. The driver would jump on the motorcycle and then the two guys would drive off. And then they would come back later and get the car after the ball tires were put on instead of the new tires and things like that. They never came back again. It worked out fantastically. And after that car drove away, you know, I breathed a sigh of relief and I waved down the street to my friend and I gave him the thumbs up signal and uh, he drove away and he never even asked me why I wanted him to park there. One thing that's interesting to me is, and I've heard some of the history behind, you know, some of the issues that immigrants from Italy and Ireland dealt with when they came over to the States. So one of my questions has to do with your identity as an outsider. And we're going to get into that a bit later. 
here, but I'm curious to know, like you said, your father probably felt like an outsider as well. He's an Italian immigrant. There must have been some draw like to these sort of questionable groups like the mob, for example, because it was like an instant family. So those feelings of being an outsider could have been dealt with quite easily just by joining that organization. So it must have been a really powerful draw for a lot of people. I'm sure it was, and especially for my father, because he knew he knew a lot of the, you know, powerful mob figures because he was also involved in horse racing business. My dad had bought a few racehorses. You know, I mentioned a lot about it in the book, how guys would congregate at the garage when I was a young guy, young kid, and they would all be talking about, oh, dad, Vito, your horse is running today and all this stuff. And they would talk about it. And my dad would send me down to the local bookie joint, which was actually attached to the back end of my gas station. You could go down there and place bets on the daily number, the horses, the dogs, anything, anything, the sports, gambling. You could make loans. You know, the guy was a loan shark, too. But anyway, my dad would send me down there as an eight or nine year old kid with a thousand dollars in cash and say, go put this on solicitation in the sixth race at Suffolk Downs today. This is the atmosphere I grew up in. It wasn't strange to me because, you know, what you live is what you know. And I thought, well, everybody does this, you know. It wasn't until years later I realized that, no, everybody's father doesn't hand them $1,000 to go to a bookie joint. (laughs) And uh, that was one of the other reasons that I thought writing the book, people might be interested in seeing what it was like growing up in that atmosphere. So your father, he seemed to just sort of be right on the edge of it then. So he maintained this sort of one foot in, one foot out. Is that correct? As far as I know. There were some strange things that happened when I was a kid. (laughs) I don't even know if I should talk about it here, but that made me question, like, whether my dad was involved in the mob in some way. But I never asked him about it. But, you know, one thing that really kind of opened my eyes, I think when I was in my early 20s, we were in the office and one of dad's horses was running at Rockingham Park. The payphone rang up in the gas station office and my dad picked it up and he goes, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he just hung up the phone and he swore. And I said, what's the matter, dad? He says, they must have got to my jockey. He says, the guy just told me, Vito, don't bet your horse today and hung up. So he was in that well with the mob guys that they would tip him off if the race was fixed, let's say. There was a lot of race fixing back in the 1960s, back in that era. They respected my dad enough that they would not want him to make a bad bet because they all knew he bet heavily on his own horse if he had a good chance of winning that day. There's no other way to say it. That's mob activity. And then in terms of your home life, your father seemed like he had a temper. Yes, And that extended to your neighbors who it sounded like from reading, it sounded like a lot of them were Irish. Yes. Yeah. So that didn't make it easier. You're already an outsider and then you're in a group of outsiders. So that <laughs> yeah. in some ways made it even harder to fit in. So you're you're one of the people that understands the title of the book. Even the gentleman that wrote the uh, forward to my book begged me, Tom, change the title. It doesn't really match what the story's all about. You were never really an outsider. You were always amazingly in. I says, yeah, but it was because I I made a big effort to get in, you know, but I always on the inside, I felt like an outsider. So, no, I'm not going to change the title. But you saw that. And I appreciate that. Probably because I in some ways identify with that as well. Like I've always kind of felt like that myself. And I think it's surprising to a lot of people because when they hear the word outsider, they think that you're supposed to be like a visible minority in some way, like either you're supposed to have different color skin or, you know, something like a visible disability or something. But I've never had anything that's visible, really. It's all internal struggles that have manifested in this feeling of being different. I wonder if everybody kind of feels that way on the inside. I don't know. I mean, you, you said you felt that way. You know why? Yeah. And for a lot of reasons. Well, for me, it's I had a lot of early life trauma, a lot of family dysfunction really early on. I felt like there was always something different or like, why would... Why would God let that happen to me, but not those other people? Like, why does everyone have their crap together and not, you know, why my family is just so not 
You know? That's exactly the feeling, Kristen. It's, that's it. Like, why, why am I different? Mm-hmm. Why do I feel different than everybody else? I had that response somewhat to your story because you start out and I can really see that makings of that feeling of being an outsider through the bullying experiences that you had, the really awful people that were around you. Maybe just they weren't awful, but because of their own experiences, that's how they behaved with others or they tried to get some power over others and that's it turned into bullying I'm not sure but then you did you did the best you could with your situation you made friends and for a good part of the book a lot of those stories you had friends around you and family and you know what I mean I was blessed I had some wonderful wonderful friends But I think those early experiences that you had just being part of an immigrant family, also with the bullying experiences, those leave a mark. And I don't think that ever goes away. Like you could have a swarm of people around you all the time and you're still going to have that feeling. Yeah. Now, in your case, did you use any tools to try to make yourself fit in? Like in my case, I used alcohol. I mean, all the tough guys in the area and all they all smoked and they drank. So I said to myself, you know, if I'm going to fit in, this is what I have to do, too. So I took up drinking and I took up smoking at 10 years old, for crying out loud. I mean, did you have to do any of those fitting in uh, things? I grew up part of the church, really heavily involved. When I was quite young, I married the worship pastor, worship leader at our church. So that gave me some sense of identity. But even within that, I still remember feeling different because I was always very analytical. I wanted to really go through the Bible and ask questions. And so people were like, why are you so nerdy about this? You know, because I had these very Christian and it was evangelical. It wasn't Catholic as it was in your case. But for myself, it was evangelical fundamentalist. Most of the surroundings where I was, a lot of people were fundamentalists. I really got into the church and I had these really strong moral views. So I didn't get into alcohol or drugs. I never really did that. So I I don't know. I, I tried to fit in with, I guess, academics. <laughs> well, they can look down on you for being an academic too, you know? Yeah. People will quadrant you off to be picked on because, oh, you're too damn smart. To answer your question, like, what did I do to fit in? I probably developed the tendency to be a people pleaser. I do the same thing. I think it's common to do that. I mean, people like you say, introvert and extrovert, you know, people might look at you and I and think, oh, they're really extroverts. But well, no, I've listened to enough of your interviews to know you're an introvert. Yeah. Down deep. And so am I. But we work at fitting in by putting on this air of being an extrovert. Yeah. And I think there's certain types of introverts. There's uh, ones who it's called sensation seeking. And I'm definitely a sensation seeker. So I want new experiences. And that's a minority of introverts are that way. And I believe from reading your book, you are as well. You want those new experiences. You want to test boundaries and take risks. Yeah. I always like to take risks. Yeah. Uh, and that's more that's more associated with an extrovert, I think. So it's probably where that comes from. You're no stranger to pain. And I've got to tell you, I admire you for being your own best advocate. You know, my mother had a saying when you dealt with your cancer situation, if it wasn't for your persistence, you wouldn't even be sitting here talking to me right now. If you took your doctor's rule as law, things would have progressed to the point where there would have been no hope for you. So I'm really glad that you're here. You know, my mother had a saying that when I was a kid, I used to hear her say this all the time. You have to be your own best doctor. And I never understood what that meant until I got to be an adult, because so many times you have to question things. And you had self-doubt, I'm sure, because of all the naysayers around you. There was a lot of internal turmoil, for sure. Yeah. You must have been furious, furious. Oh, yeah. I wanted to strangle the doctor and her (laughs) assistant. It's funny you can laugh about it now. <laughs> oh, yeah. At the time, I was just like, I want to break everything in my oh, house. I like, I was so angry. You don't realize they're playing with a life, you mm-hmm. know. And I actually did, you know, after I was able to express that anger, I was able to then contact them and just say, I actually had cancer. It could have metastasized and you should have listened to me. Sincerely, Kristen Hovitt. <laughs> Such an inspiring story. Oh. <laughs> so I wanted to, because I know you're background now and and a lot of your story, but I wanted listeners to hear from you some of the experiences you had with bullies. 
Oh, well, started quite young. You know, like you say, there's a reason for why people act the way they do. And looking back now, you know, I probably overreacted to a lot of the bullying when I was a child. I could have reacted to it differently. And, you know, bullies, as a rule, they're looking for a reaction when they do something. And I gave them what they wanted. If they're making you miserable, they like to come back for more the next day. So, you know, the young guy stuff, you know, in the neighborhood, people pushing you or maybe punching you in the head or whatever. You know, bullying goes on in all aspects of life. And if I had handled it differently, it wouldn't have been as bad. So I have to put part of the blame on me. I reacted, let things bother me too much. The thing is, I feel like those responses were very human, though, right? Yeah, because we're not educated. Nobody educated me as a child. Well, if this happens, this is how you should try to react. Yeah, it's almost like you have to force yourself to go against natural ways of responding. Now we know that, like just, you know, be silent or go tell the teacher or something. It seemed like those tools did not exist back then. Telling the teacher sometimes only exasperates things. I mean, Mm -hmm makes it worse. But some of those experiences, I mean, you had to deal with people shouting ethnic slurs at you. And I think a lot of people don't really look back at the uh, Italian experience as one of, you know, having to deal with racial slurs. Yeah, I mean, Guinea, WAP, you know, I mean, I I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard that word, you know, from a kid in school or whatever. And I never went and called anybody a harp or a Jew or, or, you know, nasty words. And I didn't understand why they were doing it to me. So I felt I felt something must be wrong with me. And couple that with dyslexia, being a slow reader, you know, you go into school, you're you're not able to keep up and you feel (laughs) under par in that way, too. It was just a bad situation. I don't think they even knew the name of the word dyslexia back when I was in school. I used to wonder, I must be stupid because these other kids can read fantastically and I can't. I have to study each word individually to get it out of my mouth. I was teased about that. It was very self-conscious. I begged them not to call on me in, in school to read out loud. And I know one of the themes running through your book seemed to be this sense of no one was there to help you. No one came to your aid. So even that experience you described where you're walking on that railing and you slipped and you actually hurt yourself really, really badly. Oh, God, yeah. And they were laughing. Kids were standing around laughing. No one came over and just said, hey, are you okay? Like that would have meant so much to you, I think. It would have. And little did I know, I actually had fractured a vertebrae when I hit that pipe on the top of that fence, you know, walking like a tightrope walker. And then the pipe was damp and I slipped off the edge of it and came perpendicular right down on top of that pipe. Wow. I lived with that pain, you know, for a long, long time. Never even told my parents about it. Right. And how old were you? I was only in, I don't know fifth or sixth grade when that happened, maybe. And uh, I didn't find out I had broken my back until I was 16 when I went to the hospital for chronic back pain. And they took an x-ray and the doctor looked at, he says, when did you break your back? And I says, oh, I did. (laughs) Wow. Do you know if scoliosis in any way related to that? I think I had what they call it idiopathic scoliosis where there's no known cause, but I'm sure it's genetic because my sister has it very, very badly. My mother had it, but breaking my back when I was young, it actually accentuated the scoliosis because my back fused itself in a bad angle. And then my back grew crooked from that point on. You know, it got to the point where my rib cage was so deformed when I was in my 20s, my spine was rubbing against my heart. My heart became enlarged. And when I had the Harrington rod surgery at age 26, it was pretty much a life-saving surgery to bring the spine away from my heart. Basically, you've dealt with pain for most of your life and most of it starting when you were quite young. Yeah. Reading your book, I got a sense, especially when you were younger, I almost like, ah... What's the sense? It's almost like a suffocating feeling, like trying to be in your shoes. And you actually wrote, there was no way to get where I wanted to go. And that sort of resonated, I felt, through your youth. On one side, you had bullies. And then even trying to ride your bike down the street, there were vicious dogs around. And it just seemed so hard for you. And there was really, like, what what did you do to deal with all of those emotions? (laughs) Well, 
my dad kind of took care of that for me. He kept me busy. <laughs> you know, while the kids were playing Little League and stuff, when I was eight and 10 years old, my dad would load me in the car on a Saturday on the day off from school or during summer vacation and take me to the South Boston to the gas station. And I worked as a, you know, pumping gas and then eventually as a mechanic when I was from a little child. It kind of like rescued me from having to be in the neighborhood. But at the same time, it subjected me to even a tougher neighborhood. The kids in Southie were tougher than the kids in Dorchester. I mean, when you got in a fight in South Boston, if you went down on the ground, you you could be assured of being booted in the face. I never saw anything like that growing up in Dorchester. You know, when I started spending a lot of time in Southie, I found out what real violence was. And even in your school, though, the sisters would kind of respond brutally, it sounded like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we have a page on Facebook for our grammar school. People talk about the horror stories of, you know, each nun had her own certain way of punishing you. And I had one that would, she was so big, I can still remember when she'd lean over you at the yardstick and blocked out the sun. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It sounded like you, in some ways, you got some of your frustration out by creatively becoming sort of the class clown, or you like to have people laugh. Yeah, I did. And I still do. But then you would get punished for that as well. Yeah, yeah. I got kept back in the third grade because of that. You know, I'd be disruptive in class because I was making kids laugh or something like that. And combined with my under prior reading ability, that kept me back. But I want to call attention to your mom, because through it all, she sounded like she always had your back. She was an angel. Even in my adulthood, if I did something stupid, she would always, my son wouldn't do that. I mean, I used to have the police take me home, <laughs> and my dad would be asleep. And like I said, I used the drinking to kind of fit in with the local gang when I was in my late teens and early 20s. Sometimes the cops would come, and in those days, they were nice enough not to take you to the police station. They would take you home, and they would knock at the door at 9 o'clock at night. My mother would never tell my dad, oh, yeah, the police took Tom home last night. <laughs> so, yeah, she always had my back, but she, she dished out her own amount of uh, punishment when I was a kid. She even broke a breadboard on my ass one day. You know, one of those ones with a handle, a bread cutting board with a handle, wouldn't fall one piece. She would whack me, bend me over in the pantry and whack me on the ass with that. And one day it just snapped in two. And I said, ah, great. Get rid of that thing. And she went out and bought a new one. <laughs> <laughs> Part of your book, you described some of the racial tensions that went on in the 70s. What kept you from getting caught up in that, or were you? I was not caught up in the racial tension or the violence because I wasn't brought up that way. Again, you, you mentioned my mother. She was very accepting. I never heard her say a nasty word about any race, religion, or person. For that matter, my dad didn't either. So I wasn't brought up in a household where we were taught to hate but the violence I saw on the streets, I mean, I wrote in the book about the time that a black man made a dumb choice of going to the post office in South Boston during the 1970s, during the busing crisis there. And uh, in the integration of the school system, that spurred more violence. And I witnessed him getting beaten by these youngsters, you know, 10, 12, 13 years old with hockey sticks. They were going to kill this guy right across the street from my gas station, all because he came to the post office to mail a letter. I was stood there in shock. I didn't know what to do. You know, you freeze in a case like that. I don't know. It felt like a long time, but maybe it was only a few seconds. I grabbed a baseball bat that we kept next to the cash register and I opened the garage door and I started over toward the group to yell, stop, you know, leave this guy alone. And at the very second I came out the door, two guys came out of a residence right next to where the incident was taking place. And they also, I don't think they even had to say anything. They just walked out and looked at these kids and they all ran up the street. But one kid stayed there just long enough. He turned around and he took the hockey stick and he smashed the windshield. There was a blonde white lady in the car. These people were probably just coming from some business office running to the post office to mail the company's letters. And the white young lady was in the front seat of the car and the guy had walked in and she witnessed all this. And right in front of her face, her windshield got smashed by the hockey stick. And then there were a lot of other incidents with bricks, people throwing bricks at the cars if they happen to have a black person in them going down Broadway. Or It was an awful time. I can't believe how far we've come in my lifetime where as bad as it is, we are a lot better off than we were back then. 
Can you, for people who don't know, could you describe the forced busing? I moved back to South Boston. I actually got an apartment on my own right at the top of what they call G Street Hill. My apartment was right across from the South Boston High School. And of course, when I rented the apartment, I never even gave thought to forced busing where they were busing black people from the black neighborhoods into our neighborhood here and in turn taking the white students and shipping them to the black schools. Every morning they would line up. I couldn't even get out of my house to go to work because there were hundreds of people there with, uh, you know, chanting, yelling, throwing rocks at the buses. There were tactical police everywhere. They even had sharpshooters on the roof of the high school in case things really got out of hand. And these are the types of things I wrote about in my book, because unless you've actually lived through this stuff, you wouldn't believe it. So it's like a bird's eye view of history in the making. Um, these were historic times, and I didn't realize that I was experiencing something special. Yeah, it's special in a bad way. The instances that really moved me in terms of just images from your book was one of the first ones where you describe seeing a young woman who was stabbed multiple times. Yeah. And she's really beautiful. She had black hair, long hair, and she was looking right at you. Yeah. And the second one was you were intoxicated one night. You were coming home, I believe, and you saw a car pull up and they had a dead black man in the back seat and and they held him up by his hair. Yeah, but bragging about it. Those are images, like you say, they're etched in your brain and you can never ever get them out of there. Seeing somebody, I, I couldn't fathom when I was that young kid, like eight or 10 years old, and it came upon that beautiful young lady that was just coming home from high school and ended up laying in a pool of blood on, on Norfolk Street in Dorchester for no reason other than being white in a black neighborhood. And in turn, coming out of that bar room where I could barely stand up and having somebody hold up the head of a human being, you know, and say, yeah, you want to see a dead whatchamacallit, you know, it's like I even woke up the next morning thinking, did I really see this? Are people really capable of this level of violence? You know, you don't realize that you don't survive all these things. It's just too many there were too many instances where I could have you know, been killed or whatever. I mean, I've had guns pointed at me a lot during my years in Southie and stuff. And uh, car accidents. I mean, I've totaled two cars where, with the driver's side, total, you know, direct side impacts where I walked away from them. And I have to ask myself, <laughs> why? You know, how? I mean, I buried a lot of my friends that weren't that lucky. They hit a pole and they died. I don't know. There's a lot of mystery in life, I'll tell you. You describe the impact of your friend Joe's murder. You say that a grim reality hit. On page 347, you said, I came to the realization that it was impossible to be this close to so much violence and death without eventually having it affect me directly. Things were getting further out of control all the time. Yeah, I felt that no matter how involved or how uninvolved I was with mob activity, just being around these situations and being associated with drug dealers and things like that, that life meant nothing. The price of life went down to 67 cents. <laughs> I mean, the mob offered to kill a guy for me if I just paid for the bullet. He asked me for 67 cents and I asked him why. And he said, you buy the bullet, Tom, and he's history. I said, this sucks. I'm getting out of here. <laughs> you can only keep the chaos back for so long, right? I'm sorry. There's no other way to say it, you know. But I consider myself a good person, and I don't want to be in the middle of this anymore. So you went to Florida, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How was it living there? Oh, it was lovely. <laughs> I loved it. I had visited Florida back in the 1970s, and uh, I fell in love with the canals and the warm weather, and I wanted to be there. I said to myself, someday I want to live here. So this was the perfect opportunity. I sold the business. I sold my house, and my wife and I went down to Florida, and we stayed there for 11 years. And uh, God only knows why I'm back here now dealing with big storms and everything one day after another. I can envision myself back in Florida again eventually. But, of course, you have the hurricanes to deal with and the floods, and no matter where you go, no place is perfect. It was family reasons that we moved back. I had hurt my back again in Florida, and I knew I was going to be disabled pretty much from that point on, and I didn't think it was fair to have my wife so far away from her family with me not being able to do much. So 
that was one of the reasons that we came back. What are the lasting effects, effects that you still experience to this day as a result of the bullying that you received as a child? That's a very good question <laughs> because I am dealing with it still to this day. Not just the bullying, but the whole boot full of memories. I cannot sleep well anymore. I mean, uh, when I go to sleep, I bite my lip till it bleeds or I'll bite my tongue till it bleeds as soon as I start to doze off. A very restless sleeper. I'm Today, I, you know, I'm working on just a few hours of sleep from last night. It's just subconsciously, I think all these negative things run through your mind while you're sleeping and there's no way to control it. I'll wake up in a violent situation, reliving something that happened at the gas station 40 something years ago, where a guy pulled a knife at the gas pump or something. And I, I wake up lunging forward to grab a knife from somebody's arm, you know, or hand. And it's happening all the time. I think I need to seek professional help on this. <laughs> mm. Well, it sounds to me like, they, and this isn't a clinical term yet. I mean, it's getting there, but complex PTSD. Have you heard of that? No. There's PTSD, as you know, and a lot of people who've been in war, people who've had really traumatic experiences experience this PTSD. But there's also complex PTSD, which I definitely feel like I have some symptoms of as well. And it's from like a lifetime of crap that you may have dealt with only in passing just and, and some that you just buried. And it sort of comes up in weird ways. We can't control it. It's always there. I mean, you almost yeah. fear going to sleep. With complex PTSD, uh, it's not in the DSM yet, but there are a lot of therapists who specialize in it. So it might be worth looking into finding a therapist who knows and is familiar with that. And most of them have like you can even have like a phone interview with them if you want before going in, because sometimes it's a waste of time. You get all ready and go and you get there and you're just like, yeah, it's not going to work. Now, do you do any counseling on your own? Or? Um, I have in my 20s. I was really uh I was not doing well, mentally speaking, psychologically. I was divorced and I things just started to come up for me, um, like nightmares that would haunt me for days and not sleeping, etc. Everything was falling apart. Um, so I started intensive psychotherapy. Uh, so it was psycho psychoanalytic psychotherapy. So it was really going with that. They go back in your past. Mm just what we need, right? Yeah, I feel I feel like different problems like you'll hear CBT come up as a good therapy, but I feel like that's better for problems that are more current. Yeah. Uh whereas things that if you have a lot of layers of issues, it might help going back through them if you're, you know, feeling courageous and you want to work through all that. It would take a lifetime to go through all the events. Yeah, yeah, it feels like that. It does feel like that, but I feel it is worth it. But you have to go in knowing that things might get worse before they get better. Hmm. People go in often they want results right now, right? But you might have a few months of just like agony, just mental agony, because you're rehashing things in your brain that you haven't dug up for a long, long time. So... And I feel like you've also done a lot. I mean, you've written a book. I feel like that was probably really cathartic for you. Yeah, because now I understand why I am the way I am, basically. When you put all these experiences together, you know, there is a second book, too. Well, there's some airy similarities between the two books because they follow the same storyline with a different twist where I did say yes to all the mob activity that was offered to me, which I easily could have done. And I wrote the book figuring what would be the most logical next thing that would have happened if I had done this. What could have happened, you know, just judging from the experiences of other people that I observed that were involved in this stuff and what happened to them. That was eye-opening, too. There's a lot of truth in the second book, even though it's fiction. Well, I feel like that was probably really uh, healing for you, both of those projects, just to think about all those things again. I want to read again a quote. This is from page 353. So whether it's out of pride or the pleasure of the act, there will always be somebody dying to remind you that you are an outsider. It starts in early childhood and could possibly be there waiting for you at the nursing home you end up checking into. <laughs> <laughs> How we all decide to deal with these situations is what's important. It's a good teaching moment. It's a good lesson because I feel like you know, if I think back myself of all the things that have made me feel like an outsider, it could really bury me. Like it could actually get me down every day if I were to dwell on it. Mm. Right. So it's like, what should I do with that? 
anyone could ask this question. What should I do with that feeling and turn it into, it's almost like alchemy. You're taking it, you're turning it into something good, right? If we only had this knowledge at the time, we didn't though. I mean, I didn't. And you used that partially. You were elected to the Freetown Lakeville Regional School Committee. And while serving, you were behind an anti-bullying policy. Can you speak about that? I had dealt with bullying myself. So I kind of studied the subject. Some people that I knew were having trouble with bullying. And I found this program. It's This is very useful for somebody that has a child that's being bullied in school. They can just look up bullies2buddies.com. It's a psychologist, Izzy Kalman. I searched him out. My wife had found him on the internet. And we used his program to solve a problem that even my son was having and some other people that we knew. He developed this program. It's golden. You talk a lot about uh, choices that you made and these sort of lessons that you had that were, a lot of times they were potentially fatal lessons yeah, yeah. Um, that you took away and changed your life. So you make the connection, though, that a lot of your choices that you made in terms of like drinking a lot of alcohol and hanging out with particular people, it was part of that fitting in process. It was. Yeah, I was determined I would do whatever it took to not be an outsider. Once I moved to this suburban town, my folks moved us out of the city and uh, we moved into the suburbs. And lo and behold, there was a lot of Italians living in the town I moved to. So finally, I was away from the Irish neighborhoods and that I had trouble fitting in. But, you know, something else, I had trouble fitting in even in an Italian neighborhood. So I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes. And I knew that this gang hung around near my house and I knew that you could hear the noise coming from the schoolyard every weekend or whatever. And you knew they were all drinking and burning rubber. And I says, well, I guess I'll have to take up drinking if I want to become accepted by this group. And so I did that. I love that story in your book with the beer, the old beer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it still had the pull tabs on and they had dust on it and everything and Hey, it broke the ice and I got in with that gang and we're still friends today with a lot of them. So tell me about the little things in life that give you the most joy. The thing I enjoy most is I've always wanted to live on the water, which I did that in Florida. We lived on a canal. I always wanted to live on a freshwater lake. So we ended up buying a house here on the lake in Lakeville. And I love just sitting and looking at the wildlife. We have a lot of different wildlife that comes by here and no two days are the same. So that time alone with nature, I really love, I love contemplating nature and how things came about. I was hoping that we could get into a little conversation about atheism and things like that, because I have some interesting thoughts on that. My next question was about if you're religious or not. So, okay. Yeah. I was brought up a strict Catholic, but you know, as I've grown older, I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I believe something special has to be out there because even things as complex as the human eye couldn't have just happened by accident. We're an amazing machine and every animal on this earth is an amazing machine. And to think that it just all happened by accident is just too much to accept for me. I mean, look what man has done. We took raw materials, iron and rubber and oil and all this stuff. And we have a Cadillac Eldorado. Okay. It's got systems in it, fuel systems, like the human body has a fuel system. Something had to put us together. I identify as an atheist, but I think there's different levels of atheism. For me, I'm more agnostic about it. I feel like we don't have the knowledge to know if there's actually something out there. So because we don't have evidence, I feel like we can't dictate. Like, I feel like it's so silly that a church or a preacher or whatever believes that they have access to God. Well, what is that? How could you say that you have access to something so big as that, right? I know. I agree with you. It's like, who can say that their religion is the best or the one religion that is the true religion? I mean, everybody's God is their God. Whether it's nature, I mean, my God is nature, and I know there's something special out there. Most of the wars in this world and people die over religion, it just drives me crazy. Yeah, I believe we're all connected, and I think there's a lot that comes with that. If you contemplate that connection alone, I think that really dictates how you treat others. It changes how you cope with hard times, for example. Yeah. 
my religion is to try to be as good to people as you possibly can and treat people the way you'd want to be treated. I don't do anything to hurt anybody else. And I think that's the religion to live by. Exactly. What's something that you've been following in the news recently? Oh, my God. (laughs) Do I have to say? (laughs) I'm just really worried about our country right now. I'm worried about somebody having their finger on the military that can't even run his own personal life. I'm sorry. I just had to say it. What's your most prized possession and why? It has to be a machine. Uh, I would say it's my vehicles, whether it be a motorcycle at the time or my car. I talk to my car. When I go on vacation, I say goodbye to my car and I pat it when I come back and say, did you miss me? (laughs) I don't think I'm unique in that I feel of my vehicles as strongly as I do. It's just a guy thing, I guess. I guess there's girls that do it too. So we already discussed introversion. Obviously, you consider yourself an introvert from what you said. In your family, were there a lot of other introverts? I come from a very unique family. (laughs) They're introverts, but they love the center of attention. I have a lot of entertainers in my family. My sister's a country western singer out in Colorado by the name of Peggy Malone. She was my inspiration for doing whatever interests me to go for it because good things will happen. Now, she has passed that on to her kids. They are all musicians. And uh, one is a Broadway uh, Tony-nominated actress, Beth Malone, who was in Fun Home in New York City on Broadway last year. And now she's in one or two new Broadway plays that are coming out. But she's very quiet and mild to be around, but loves the attention of a thousand people in the audience. And my sister also thrives on that. Some of the best performers I'm finding are actually really introverted. Yeah. That goes against what most people think. Most people are like, oh, he's an actor. He must be like super extroverted. I could never do that. Uh, You know. It's almost a coping mechanism to deal with your self-doubt. What's your theme been for 2018 so far? My theme is to get better. Until I've had this shoulder surgery, I have to admit I felt really down in the dumps because I felt there was no hope for the pain that I'm in. I was turned down by three different shoulder surgeons to do this because apparently my scoliosis has affected the bone structure in my shoulder too, which is another thing that leads me to believe it's a genetic condition. They couldn't do a normal shoulder joint replacement or they were too afraid to do it or whatever, but I had given up because I combine that with my back pain, which I'm constantly in. Uh, The shoulder actually trumped that as it got worse. But my friend had had a dislocated bicep, and he found this doctor in Boston that fixed him up, and he raved about him. And he told me he spent more time at his doctor's appointment talking about me. (laughs) He said, you know, I have a friend that can't get any relief. He can't find a doctor. He says, bring him in. I'll fix him up. Yeah, this doctor saw me. He says, I wish you came in to see me three years ago. I want to get you in there and fix that shoulder. If he can do this with my shoulder, I'm hoping that the next step, It would certainly improve the quality of my life. If you had one message for the world, what would it be? Smarten up. (laughs) Be kind to each other and stop worrying about everybody else's religion. I thank you so much for reaching out to me. Thanks again so, so much. And I hope you continue to heal really well from your surgery. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. If you'd like to get a hold of Thomas, you can email him at constantoutsider at aol.com. I've included a link to his author page and more in this episode's show notes. That concludes our 17th episode of Humans of Earth. Please visit kristenhovitt.com for more information and consider becoming a patron of Humans of Earth through Patreon at patreon.com slash humans of earth. Shout out to our patrons. This podcast would not exist without you. Thank you for joining me today and be sure to tune in next time.